Well, uh, I want to start off by asking you to think about some kids who changed the world. And to do that, I want to look at Daniel chapter 1 and 2. And think about children who did some astonishing things. First guy I want you to introduce you to is Philo T. Farnsworth. Most of you don't know that guy. <coughs> he was uh, a teenager in 1923. He was 18 years old, and he was obsessed with science. He realized that the spinning disk technology that was being used to project images up on screens was not great technology. So he wanted to figure out, how do I project images on screens electronically? He worked out the math and the science on this, and he handed it to his high school physics teacher, and he didn't understand the whole thing at all. And so he, he said, give me the diagram, still didn't understand that. But Philo T. Farnsworth wanted to pursue this idea of projecting images on screens. Well, he graduated. The next year, his dad died, so he had to help his mom with the family. But he persevered at this. And in 1923, uh, he made the first successful television transmission in Los Angeles. Did you know he invented the TV? He died in 1971. Imagine what he must have thought in 1971 as the inventor of this technology that we all, we all know about. Well, today, it's inconceivable that we would deal without screens, right? We have screens for everything. We have screens on our computers. We have screens at home and our television. We have screens in our cars. We have screens on our, on our phones, on our watches. It is inconceivable that we would deal with life without screens. Well, that vision was began with a teenager in the year 1923. Sometimes teens can, and kids can change the world. Or consider a completely different example. Here's Anne Frank. Some of you have read about this delightful young woman. Well, uh, she was a German-born Jewish girl. She moved to Amsterdam in the year 1933. Within a decade, Amsterdam was controlled by the Nazis, and as the Jewish persecution intensified, she and her family had to go into hiding. Tragically, they were betrayed, sent to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, and Anne and her sister died within months before that concentration camp was delivered. But when her dad came back, she, he, dad found out, realized that she had, she had been writing this journal, this diary. And this diary was just wonderfully written, and her dad published it in 1947. And that diary has been amazingly influential. In fact, three people that you may, you may recognize, Nelson Mandela, Eleanor Roosevelt, and John Kennedy, all refer to Anne Frank as a significant inspiration in their respective lives. Nelson Mandela said, I read her diary while I was in prison and gained immense encouragement from what she wrote. Here's a teenager who has changed the world. Time Magazine, I think, expressed that uh, in June of 1999 that she was one of the most important people in history. Here's somebody I'm sure you don't know. This is a guy by the name of Kelvin Doe. This is an amazing young man. He grew up in 
Freetown, Sierra Leone in 1996, and he was as poor as you could possibly be. He was frustrated by the fact that there were, there were problems with electricity in his city. Sometimes it would be on, sometimes it would go off, there were rolling blackouts and so on. So he rummaged around in the trash. He began to find little electronic things, and pretty soon he had developed a battery pack that would power his house reliably. We thought, well, if I can do that with my house, maybe I can do that with the houses of, of others. So he kept on fiddling around with electronic stuff, and pretty soon he had, he had provided power for his entire neighborhood, reliable power. That wasn't good enough, though, so he developed a radio, and pretty soon he was broadcasting. This guy, as a teenager, became a superstar inventor, and his TEDx teen talk is amazing. But again, here's a teenager who changed the world. Now, obviously, these three kids are very, very unique. Not everybody sits down as a teenager and pens a bestseller that presidents are going to read for inspiration. Not everybody's going to be able to assemble little electronic things and create a radio station, right? These are unique people. But what these three examples illustrate is that kids can do great things if they are mentored, if they are empowered, if they are discipled. And we see this idea played out all the time in God's Word. You know, among all the books in world literature, among all the books down through history, the Bible as a book champions the idea that children are made in the image of God, that children are capable of immense, immense achievements. Now, I'm not talking about things that necessarily make people famous, but things that can change the world if they're mentored, <laughs> if, they're, if they're discipled. And what I want to focus on as we begin this series called Transforming the Next Generation is this idea that kids can be agents of transformation. And we as adults can be those who help transform that next generation. So this series is the beginning of, of our series in which we want to lay out the case for why we want to build a ministry to transform the next generation and why we want to construct a building that will help us to do that. Um, this idea of transformation is entirely consistent with our overall ministry vision. Um, our one word that we champion here at Grace is transformation. And the more we talk about that, the more people have come to me saying, I have a story to tell. And I hear the story and I think, that's an amazing story. That, that shows how God is at work in your life, in the life of your family, and, and in our church at large. And one of the things we want to do is be all the more proactive at doing that broadly throughout our, our church. So um, this morning, I want to lay the foundation. So I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 1 and 2, if you're not already there. And I'm going to start by recounting the story of four teenage boys, Daniel, Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <coughs> so <clears throat> the story begins in the seventh century before Christ, and it was a dark time in Israel's history. The Old Testament prophets are hearing things from God in prayer, and they're very disturbing. For instance, Habakkuk hears that God is raising up a new superpower, the Babylonians. 
And the Babylonians have the, the power to crush the nations around them. And Habakkuk is concerned about that. Jeremiah likewise predicted that Israel would be defeated by the Babylonian armies when they came and besieged Jerusalem. Jeremiah further went on to predict that the Babylonians would take some of the young men, some of the nobles, and remove them to Babylon. And then Jeremiah predicted something shocking. He says, when Babylon comes, do not resist them. That sounds kind of strange. Like they're coming against your city. Don't resist them. Because at least some of you will live to see a new day. Well, as you know, the Babylonians did come in 605 BC. They did besiege Jerusalem. Jerusalem did fall, and nobles were taken and removed from Jerusalem to Babylon. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were among those three. Now, once they arrived, they go through an intense season of training that was designed to strip them of their identity. You know, if you go into one of the special forces in the military, one of the things that happens to you is that your former identity gets stripped away, and now you're no longer that individual person you once were. You are a Green Beret or a Delta Force operator or a Navy SEAL or whatever special forces you go into. Your identity is stripped away. So you're part of the, part of the unit, part of the team. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had their identity stripped away through their university curriculum that they, they went through. And to truly grasp this, we have to look at what it was they went through. So there are four aspects of the curriculum. Number one is that they would learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, which meant that they learned how to read Akkadian. That is the cuneiform-shaped language that is really difficult to read. They had to learn how to read that fluently. They had to learn how to speak Aramaic, which was the language of business. And so for three years, it's a crash course in learning two new languages. And then they complete a three-year session. And how do, how do you serve a pagan king? Well, they uh, learn how to interpret dreams, how to advise the king on cultural things and financial affairs and the art of magic. I tried to think of a way to think about what this would have been like. You know, you've read Harry Potter, you know the whole Hogwarts thing. That's what they're into for three years, except this is the real deal, and they're learning how to do the magic that was devoted to the false deities. Then they uh, have to learn the customs and culture of Babylon. They, they got to learn to dress like Babylonian leaders. They have to learn to eat like Babylonian leaders. They have to learn to speak like Babylonian leaders. They have to learn how to be upper-crust Babylonians. I don't know if you've ever seen Ron Howard's uh, documentary on the Beatles, uh, Eight Days a Week. It talks about their touring years. And the Beatles say that, you know, we, we talked like lower-class Liverpool boys, lads. And Brian Epstein, our manager, you know, was well-educated, and he spoke like a proper upper-crust Britisher. And uh, that's what these guys are learning to do. They're learning to speak like upper-crust Babylonians. And then they get new names. <coughs> uh, these new names reflected the names of the various Babylonian deities. Uh, Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects his, his life. Now, now, remember, the whole point of this was 
to completely strip them of their old identity as Israelites. They no longer had their hopes and their dreams. They're no longer Jews believing in an infinite personal God. And now they're designed to be polytheists who use who, manipulation to influence the gods. At least that was the idea. Now you think, you think about this and you say, well, so what happened to these four guys? I mean, weren't they broken by the program? Did they not have terrible PTSD? Were they, were they confronting you know, suicidal thoughts and depression and despair and anxiety? I mean, think about all they lost, family, friends, religious identity, old world view. Uh, they had lost the possibility for a loving marriage or family. They'd lost everything. Weren't they totally, horribly broken by this, by this whole thing? Nope. Um, the intent was to strip them of their identity. That was the intent. But what happened is they were transformed by God in this process. We see that in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the official. So imagine the scene, Daniel and his, his friends are, you know, there in the cafeteria, they go through the line, there's this really beautiful, sizzling, eight ounce filet mignon. It looks so good, melted butter on top, wonderful seasonings, Cajun seasonings, Paul Prudhomme style seasonings on top. And Daniel's looking at this thing and it smells so good. And Daniel says, uh-oh. I can't do that. Exodus chapter 34, 13 through 15 says, I'm not to participate in the food dedicated to the idols. And so he goes to the commander of the officials and he makes a request. Now, rather than being all demanding and entitled and saying, I can't do this because I'm, I'm really a good Jewish boy, that would have gotten him killed, by the way. Daniel proposes another alternative. He said, okay, Chief, can we go plant-based for 10 days? Sort of test us and, and see how we look at the end of that time period. If we're doing okay, then let us continue on with this special diet. And incredibly, incredibly, the chief of the officials agrees, but look at why he agreed. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the officials. God had to be supernaturally involved in order for Daniel to go back to the scriptures and for the chief of the officials to follow Daniel's request. How did that happen? Well, the way that it happened is that Daniel had a mom and a dad and a community of faith that empowered him to thrive even under pressure. Daniel has no earthly reason to continue as a Jew, does he? The temple's gone. His parents are gone. Uh, Israel is, is history, at least humanly speaking. He has no reason to continue as a Jew. So why does he continue nobly and robustly in this worldview? Why does he do that? It had to have been his mom and dad in the community of faith 
who brought him up in God's word and gave him an experience with the living God. I mean, I, I want to tell you, the Babylonian culture was really cool, really hip, awesome, trendy. It was the brand new thing. And Daniel could have said, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to be done with all that stuff from my previous life and be in this new trend of Babylonian culture. It's going to be awesome. Why did he maintain faithfulness to God? Because he had a community of faith and a mom and dad who brought him up to encounter God in the context of God's word. You know, kids don't, don't just do that out of nowhere. It comes as the result of training. And he had been trained to stay close to God, <coughs> even in the midst of terrible pressure. Well, now the story takes an amazing turn because in Daniel chapter 2, we discover that he has something else besides having God's word. So um, Daniel, besides having God's word, had had many personal encounters with God that did something for him. So fast forward a few years. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have graduated with honors from the training program. They can now speak Aramaic with no trace of an accent. They can read Akkadian very quickly. They knew the customs and the traditions. They look for all intents and purposes like good Babylonian royal officials. And the day after they graduate, they enter into the king's personal service. You can't imagine how prestigious this was. This is like getting an ambassadorship or getting a PhD from a prestigious university. This, is, this was incredible. But there was a test that could have ended their lives. Because one day, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Dreams were really important in the ancient world because the gods would communicate, at least so they thought, to the king through his dreams. So the king has a, has a dream. It was a disturbing dream. He's puzzled by the dream. So he calls in his magicians. All right, guys, had a dream. I want you to interpret the dream. Okay, no problem. Tell us the dream. They, he, king says, nope. I, I don't remember the dream. So you got to tell me the dream and its interpretation. Blank stares. What? You heard me. You tell me what I dreamed, and then you tell me the interpretation. Well, they stall for time. They begin to manip manipulate the king, and then they shame the king. They say, no king has ever asked this of any sort of magician. And they're shaming him, making him feel, feel guilty. <coughs> Finally, the king explodes. That's it, he says, I'm killing the whole lot of you. And that would include Daniel and his three friends. So later that day, Arioch, the king's ex executioner, comes to Daniel's house, knocks on the door, scowling on his face. He said, I'm coming to take you guys and kill you. Well, <coughs> Daniel displays not an ounce of anxiety or concern or fear, in fact, he engages the executioner in a warm conversation. And he says, Mr. Executioner, I'm paraphrasing, uh, would you allow me to speak personally to the king? The executioner agrees. Daniel is taken to the king. When Daniel faces the king, uh, he says, and I'm compressing this, oh, king, if you give me 24 hours, I will give you the dream, and I will give you the interpretation. King says, okay. So Daniel goes back home, gathers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego together, and they gather together as a community of faith, as a group of brothers in the faith. And they pray as if their life depended upon it, because it did. 
So the next day, the executioner shows up at the door, <laughs> and Daniel has a big grin on his face. He's happy because God revealed the dream and he revealed the interpretation. And he goes to the king, he recounts the dream, and I can imagine the king nodding and says, yes, 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 that's what I dreamed. Yes, that's, so what's the interpretation? And Daniel gives the interpretation and Daniel does something else. He interjects a bit of spiritual leadership after giving the king both the dream and the interpretation. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a second. What would give Daniel the impulse to, number one, not be afraid when the executioner shows up, and two, to say, we got to gather the community of faith together and pray? How does that happen? How does somebody even, even know about how to do that? Well, that came from the result of training. Somebody had built into Daniel's life so that he knew, under pressure, I have to pray. I have to pray. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit here because Daniel does not mention this per se, but it would appear Daniel's mom and dad also had encountered an emergency situation. It would appear that they faced those emergency situations with intense prayer. I suspect Daniel was with his mom and dad when they poured out themselves in prayer. Maybe they prayed for many hours. And therefore, when the chips were down for Daniel, what does Daniel do? Daniel does what he was trained to do. And what he was trained to do was to not panic, but pray under pressure. And so the essence of Daniel's belief system is this. When secular powers produce pressure, we don't panic, but we pray. And we pray in the context of a community of faith. Now, what's amazing is that Daniel's hymn, his psalm of praise in Daniel chapter 2, <coughs> does not show that he has embraced the worldview of Babylon, all those gods and the magic and all that stuff. Quite the contrary, Daniel believes that the infinite personal God of the universe is ruling over all, even ruling over him, and he has the power to do the impossible. So Daniel encountered two things. He encountered God's word, and he encountered the presence of God. So with that idea, I just I want to tease out this, this core idea that comes from Daniel 1 and 2 about equipping and empowering children and youth. This story reveals the secret to bringing up children who transform the next generation. And the core idea is this. <laughs> Kids who transform the next generation encounter four things. We see these four things in Daniel chapter 1 and 2. The first thing that they encounter, and by the way, this, this is true of every generation, is that kids who encounter transformation learn God's word often going deep. So going back to Daniel, what would Daniel have known about God's word? We'll go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Daniel says to the parents, you know, you have to take the word and bring the word into the daily life of your kids. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so Daniel's parents and the community of faith had empowered Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go deep in the word. It wasn't, little, you know, it wasn't like a mile-wide-inch deep stuff. 
He had empowered them to go, to go deep into, into the word. Not just knowing it, but doing it. You know, um, I'm a grandfather. My, my kids are, are grown and, and off. And as a grandfather, I sort of forget what I did as a dad until I'm with my kids. And then I'll get with my kids and I'll go, oh, wow. I remember dealing with that. So I'm with Jared and Rachel in North Africa, my son and daughter-in-law. And my two grandsons, like all young boys, are very active. They fight. They argue. And I'm seeing my son and daughter-in-law train them about forgiveness. And the idea is not just that they were saying, you have to forgive, but they're creating scenarios where they're training them to do what the Bible tells us to do about forgiveness. That is the heart of what we do with God's word. We don't just know it, like we know English grammar or the works of C.S. Lewis or whomever. Okay, I know that. No, we, we know it, and then we're trained to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, somebody who's a nurse or a doctor. You know, you don't just tell a brand new medical school graduate, okay, we need to turn the anesthesia on and put that person to sleep. Hmm, not a, not a good idea. That's why they have residencies. So you spend three years being trained to do something that is complex and difficult. So part of the thing with God's word is we, we teach it, but we train in how to do it. That's why Jesus said, you know, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. Now we move to the <coughs> second thing that kids need. <coughs> they need to encounter God as being supernaturally present. You encounter God as somebody who's supernaturally present. When I first came um, to Christ, I encountered Christians who believed in the supernatural presence of God. And I, I just, I, I was like surprised, you know, because I've been around church people a lot, but when I was with this small group, I thought, well, like they really believe that Jesus is present, like, like right here, and that the Holy Spirit is right here. They really believe that. And I was so attracted to that kind of lifestyle. I know people who don't really get that. It's like, it's like I, I'm supposed to do the right thing I know that God is somewhere out there, but not sure where, not sure how I engage him more than just formal prayer. So how do I go about this? Like, like that is not the New Testament view of a relationship with Jesus. The New Testament view is that you live in the presence of the resurrected Christ who is king. And the idea is that I, I can engage Jesus personally and be empowered by him, by him personally. And that's why it's so important for, for us as parents and for mentors and disciple makers to impart that to our kids. So for instance, if God has answered a big prayer in your life as a parent or as a mentor, you got to tell that story. If God has changed your life through his power, you have to tell that story because as you tell that story, younger Christians, teens and children go, okay, so God was real to that person. Maybe God can be real to me as well. 
That's why I think Daniel's impulse was to gather the community together and to pray. The third thing, that way the kids encounter transformation, is that they learn to operate in spirit-filled communities. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, four, four brothers, you know, uh, four brothers who are praying as if their life depended upon it, and they're seeing breakthrough in the context <coughs> of community. You know, so when I went to Southern Methodist University as a freshman, you know, I was incredibly blessed almost from the very first week with a series of friends who were my lifeline. Many of them were in my fraternity, uh, somewhere on my dorm floor. And we, we did life together. Uh, we, we did things together to encourage one another to stay faithful to the cause of Christ while we were in college. I needed that community of faith. Kids and teens need to learn how to operate in spirit-filled communities where they come to God with a need and they see that need being met through, through prayer. And um, how did Daniel do that? He was trained. Why did I know how to do that when I was in college? Because my mentor in high school told me that was a strong value. When you get to college, he said, you gotta seek out people with whom you can do life. Before I went to college, my parents sent me to an all-male boarding school in Princeton, New Jersey. And I scoured that place, trying to find one believer. I could not find one. Finally, somebody said, you know, I think there's a guy in Hamill House who's a believer. And I went to meet that guy, and, and he was, nah was not now. So God, God gave me the gift of a college sophomore at Princeton named Gardy Friedlander who came and picked me up, took me to the Bible study. Like, why, why was I so passionate about finding a community of faith? Because my high school mentor said, that's what you need. That's what you need. That's what empowers you to go to the, to go to the distance. And the first thing that, ki that kids need, that we all need, is they need leaders who will ruthlessly, and I mean ruthlessly, eliminate legalism. So what is legalism? Legalism is excessive adherence to religious formulas or laws. Legalism is like a dependence upon rules as opposed to relationship. And legalism sometimes creeps into a church or it creeps into a home, and the kids get the impression that all mom and dad want, all the church want, is for me to be good. That's it. If, if I just look right, that's, that's what's... Uh, and so kids learn how to look right, but don't have the reality on the inside. So think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did they complain about their secular education? Nope. They received it. They could have complained over it. Ah, we don't believe this stuff. This is garbage. They received it. Uh, did they complain about the new boss who was like ruthlessly immoral and bad? Ah, that Nebuchadnezzar, he's a bad guy. Nope, didn't do that. That would have got him killed. Did they complain about their new names, reflecting the names of Babylonian gods? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar doesn't really fit for me. You know, I'm, I'm not like really into that. Abednego, I don't really like that name. 
Can, can I get a different name? They, they don't do that. They, they, they do not evidence any sense of, of legalism. Rather, what they're focusing on is on one thing. <clears throat> God has called us to serve him in this secular place, in the power of the spirit, in the context of community, and we're gonna do that. Uh, I wanna remind you that they're not the only teens who transformed their generation. Um, but by the way, here are the four things in summary. God's word, God's presence, empowered community, and healthy culture. Four components of transforming teens, kids, actually any, any of us. But you know, there are other people, other teens who transformed their generation, the prophet Samuel, Mary the mother of Jesus, Paul, Timothy, the social, Jesus himself, you know, at age 12, was acting in a very transformative way. All I'm saying is this. God loves to transform kids so they can transform the next generation. He loves to do that. Now let's look at some takeaways for what this looks like in this next season of grace. So I want you, first of all, please understand exactly what we're, we're planning by God's grace, we hope to create a physical space on this property where our church can experience transformational discipleship and especially influence youth and kids. As I said in the video, it's, we're planning for about 16,000 square feet, roughly in half, half devoted to the kids, half devoted to the youth. We wanna make the kids area very secure up to the standards that churches have these days. Um, as of this month, all of our, of our staff and elders are ministry safe certified or in the process of that. We have all of our teachers uh, be ministry safe certified. That is our aspiration. That's what we're working toward always. And so the idea is we want to create a very safe environment. Transformation begins in, a, in an atmosphere of safety. Uh, but our kids' area and our youth area are places, spheres, where we want that transformation uh, to take place. We're going to connect that area of youth and kids' area with an expanded atrium. That expanded atrium will also include uh, an expanded kitchen. Um, we have uh, expanded celebrate recovery dinners that take place. On Monday nights, we have all church events that take place, so the atrium will be expanded, leading to that children and youth center. Here's what I want to say. This is far more than, our desire is far more than a building. Our desire is the transformation that takes place inside that building. Here's the, the second takeaway. And the second takeaway is, um, please understand why we are doing this. Um, I'm sure parents have felt pressures in every generation to bring up their kids. But the pressures in this generation are really unique. Parents face a huge challenge. We, we live in an, a post-Christian, increasingly anti-Christian kind of a culture where the values that we espouse as followers of Jesus are actively ridiculed actively challenged in all sorts of places. And so we know parents feel, feel the struggle of that. Um, I hear stories, I read about stories, you know, where, where kids are not coming back to Christ after they come out of college, you know. So I read the book, you know, Almost Christian by Kendra Dean or Generation X Christian by Drew, Drew Dick, 
or You Lost Me by David Kenneman. And you read these books and you think, like, okay, it's really bad. It's really bad. So, like, do we throw up our arms and say, yeah, okay, just guess, guess, guess we can't do anything about this? Well, that's emphatically what we don't want to do. Because Jesus said um, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We want to be the solution to the problem. So, you know, I'm a parent who saw two of his kids move away from the faith for a period of time. And I just have to tell you, our church was not the problem, it was the solution to the problem. Because when our son Jared had a bad experience in college and drifted away seriously and was arrested for possession of drugs, our church gathered around my son, encouraging him we had people in this church who mentored him and discipled him. And my son is now advancing the cause of Christ in North Africa, he and his wife and our two grandchildren. But, but here's the deal. Our church was the solution to the problem because our church had such a healthy blend of grace and truth, grace accepting him where he was, truth helping him to move to that next place. And that's the culture that we want to transform the next generation. Our, our older son was away from the faith for maybe eight, nine years. And again, it was the, it was the church that brought him back. My son-in-law my son -in -law and my daughter invited him into their home for nine months. Him and his dog for nine months while he searched for a job and couldn't find a job. And then one day he said to my son-in-law, will you, will you disciple me? Like, that was not part of my son's vocabulary. My son did not have the D word in his vocabulary. So when, when, he, when he said that, when he said to me that he said that, I thought, where did that come from? But again, the church was part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that's what we want. We want to be part of the solution in God's, in God's strength. That leads to the third takeaway. And the third takeaway is, <coughs> um, third takeaway is, uh, okay, so yeah, so what I wanted to say is that in light of this, you know, we're going to do a, a workshop um, for parents that's going to come up from the 9th of February to the 8th of March uh, for some practical ideas for parents about how they can do this. How they can do this. Okay, third takeaway, because I'm running a little late on time. Please understand what we are asking, asking you to do. Well, as I said in, in the video, we are, we've done so much planning so far. We're asking members of our congregation to prayerfully consider giving a gift over and above regular giving for a period of three years. Like, you know, when I am even saying that right now, I'm taking a big gulp because I know what I'm asking you to do. I know what I'm asking myself and my wife to pray about. But I'm, I'm doing this feeling just strongly led and the elders and staff feeling strongly led that this is where God has us and for us to do this, we need to exercise supernatural faith to make this, to make this, this happen. So we'd like to, for you to come before God and say, Lord, okay, our church is endeavoring to do something that's big. And Lord, show me how you want me to respond during this season. What would you have me do? And then be faithful with what he says. We know God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so we know money's no problem for God. We just, we just want to ask, Lord, what do you want us to do 
to fulfill this vision. And then finally, what, he, what we would like all of us to do, and that is just pray for more workers, more disciple makers, more mentors, more coaches. You know, a while back, I was at a, a, a restaurant and I saw one of our youth leaders and there were, there were nine uh, high school students around a table with one of our youth leaders. And I'm, I'm looking at him, you know, he was working for ConocoPhillips and he was with these nine students. It was, you know, lunchtime. And I heard a little bit of the conversation. I thought, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for people who've got a vision for mentoring. And the people that he mentored are now off into their careers doing very cool things. So we got to pray for workers in the harvest field. Um, I am convinced that God has got some really cool things happening. You know, 25 years ago, we had students who are now off into, like, close to midlife, doing great things. God can do th great things in, the, in our church in the next generation. That's how we want to pray. Let's stand for our closing prayer.